Um, I'm going to read some portions of Genesis 7, 17 through 9, 17, so buckle up. Um, <laughs> the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. And Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. And then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But from his fellow man I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast on the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. It's good to see all of you this morning. We are uh, continuing our series in the book of Genesis. 
Our uh, end goal, as we, uh, as I said last week, is uh, not the whole book of Genesis, but simply the first part of chapter 12. So we are getting really close. Uh, we uh, honestly, we have three more weeks left in Genesis after today. So after that, we will uh, turn to the New Testament and uh, be looking at a one little segment, one portion of the <clears throat> Sermon on the Mount. Uh, specifically uh, looking at the Beatitudes as Jesus describes what life is like as a member of his new kingdom that is bursting into this world. What does it mean uh, to take on the character and life of a kingdom member? So we will uh, we'll be getting to that uh, in the middle of June. But here we are uh, finishing up this portion of Genesis, and as we, uh, as we jump in, will you go to the Lord and pray with me one more time and ask that he would be present with us. Heavenly Father, we do now come to you and pause and ask that you would send your spirit to speak to us. Um, at the end of the day, Jesus, we, we desperately need to hear from someone who can speak into our life, into our lives, into this world, words of eternal life, um, words that give meaning and purpose, uh, words that give hope. So, Father, however we find ourselves here this morning, whether we come in with great expectation that we do expect to hear from you, we do expect to leave this place uh, knowing that we have met with the living God, or perhaps we come in doubting and wondering whether these things could even possibly be true. Would you convince us? Would you meet with us? Would you even, were we to say, speak to us? Because at the end of the day, it's not the person that's speaking the mic right now that we need to really hear from. We need to hear from you. If you truly are the creator, if you truly are the redeemer, would you meet with us now? Convince us of these things. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, um, the older I get, the more I, uh, the more I find myself forgetting things. Um, I think we all forget things from time to time. Uh, I was just on the way here this morning. I forgot where I was, and um, driving here with my collar on, I'm, I pull up behind someone, and the light turns green, and they don't move, and it's, it's the New York part of me. I wasn't upset. I wasn't mad. I wasn't angry, but I honked my horn, and then it dawned on me, you're not in New York. That's not going to be taken and so I, 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 then I just paused. And I let the person go, remembering I have a collar on. I'm like, this person doesn't need to know who's in the car, driving the car, honking at them. So I let them go on. I, for a moment, I just forgot I was in Madison. Uh, I think the, uh, probably one of the lowest points and moments as a father and a parent happened by me forgetting something, actually forgetting Someone. It happened. Um, he's not here this morning, but he knows I'm going to share this story. He helped me fill in some of the details that I even forgot. <coughs> um, when Walt was about 10 years old, we were uh, we were in the middle of our summer programming with the nonprofit that I run back in Queens, and we had a a, a group of volunteers that that convinced me, hey, we we want to take all hundred campers uh, on the subway train 
30 minutes away to the science museum and, and take them to the science museum. And I'm the, being the risk taker that I am, I'm thinking, oh, that's, that's great. Let's do it. Great. So um, the day comes when uh, we're, they're, they're supposed to do this trip. And I'm like, Walt, come with me. And um, we were borrowing somebody's car. And I drove ahead uh, of the group to the train station so I could go upstairs, buy all the tickets for all the kids. Of course, you get a really good discount for, for kids and students. But anyway, I had to get there and have them all there. And then once they got there, I had to kind of go over how this is going to work. And we broke them up into groups. And we're all going to enter a different train car at the very same time. So that was the plan. So we get there, and we pull underneath the train station. Walt's in the car. This, now, keep in mind, this is the middle of summer. And um, uh, it's hot. And so um, I, I, I'm like, Walt, um, stay right here. I'll be right back. I'm just going to go upstairs, purchase the tickets, get them on the train. I'll be right back. I leave the keys in there, leave the AC running. He's, he's Health-wise, he's safe, just in case you're wondering. Um, so I, I get upstairs, and I do all that. They show up. We get them on the train. And as we're getting them on the train, I walk onto the train as well with one of the groups. And I'm talking with the leader and talking about, all right, what do we need to do next? And I'm forgetting. And I, I'm on the train, and now I'm so wrapped up in, in just making sure this group's going to get to the museum safely. <clears throat> Uh, we get there, and then I said, all right, let, I'm gonna, uh, I'll walk with you to the museum. Uh, remember, this is a 30-minute subway ride already. We get off the train. It's a 10-minute walk to the museum. I get them in. They're all safe. I'm like, okay, y'all have a great time. I'll see you back at the church. I go back, take a 30-minute subway ride back. I get down to the bottom of the subway, and the car is gone. At some point, Walt, it dawned on Walt, my dad has forgotten me, and he's not coming back anytime soon. And he, had he took the keys out of the ignition, walked back to the church, and somebody, actually the car owner, uh, came and got the car, and they went back to the church. So that when I got back, I walk in the church, Walt is in there, now it's like an hour and 45 minutes later. And I felt horrible. And to this day, I, I still like, I mean, I, I've apologized a million times to Walt, but I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in Walt's shoes, his seat, to sit there for 10 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half. Where's my dad? And this passage, <laughs> we are told, that regardless of where you and I find ourselves sometimes, regardless of whether it might feel similar to what Walt might have been experiencing that day, God does not forget us. He does not. In that respect... <laughs> God is not like us, thankfully, and not like me at all. This passage is all about God remembering from start to finish. It starts with the author himself intentionally using language to remind us of some things he's already said. He starts off by saying, the one thing that he starts off by saying is that God sent a wind across the waters of the earth. The flood waters. God sends a wind. Now, you and I, 
reading in our English translations would not pick up on this, but the original audience would have because the same word for wind is the same for spirit in Hebrew. And right from the very beginning, do you remember the first two verses of Genesis? God's spirit was hovering over the waters. Now, he continues, and in English, we would start to catch some things that he's repeating. After that, there's numerous things. Verse 12, he waited seven days. The number, we are familiar with the number of seven days and something happening over a course of seven days. Verse 16, God gives instructions to you and your wife, recalling a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Verse 17, birds and animals, and the, the author intentionally says, and creep every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We've heard that before. Creeping, not creepy things, creeping things. Be fruitful and multiply. Twice repeated in chapter 9. That was also repeated twice in chapter 1. Verse 9, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So what's going on here? What's the purpose for what is most certainly an intentional, careful repetition of the very beginning of creation in Genesis? This is new creation happening. Or perhaps it's better to say, this is creation emphasized. You see, far from abandoning God's original plan and mandate for creation in general and humanity in particular, God is now reestablishing his purpose, purposes and intentions for humanity and for all creation. If you and I were not convinced after chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis of God's high view of creation, his handiwork, his high view of humanity's call within that creation to steward it and to care for it and to honor one's fellow human beings who are also called to reflect and mirror God's good and just and creative being, it's confirmed here and it's reemphasized. And honestly, here is where historical Christianity, that, that is the way that Jesus of Nazareth taught and led his own disciples, this is where it differs, I would make the case, from just about every other religion and philosophy that you and I might encounter. You see, this world and all that's in it, including the pain and suffering that you and I experience, despite what some philosophies and religions might teach, is not an illusion. It is real. And furthermore, the goal of the Christian faith is not that one day we'll get beamed out of this world and flown to some merely spiritual existence somewhere past Jupiter, out there somewhere. Even though that teaching has actually crept in to Christian theology, has crept into the church from time to time. But that idea is actually directly challenged by this passage. And it's challenged not simply by the repetition of Genesis 1 and 2. In verse 9, God says, Behold, 
I establish, I now establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And that promise is just one of seven times that God repeats his commitment of his covenant promises. Seven times in this passage, it's repeated that God is covenanting with Noah and all creation. And so the point of the flood story that we come away with in the end, according to Genesis, is that God is committed to this world. He has fashioned, and in fact, he is now doubling down on that commitment. And that's what the rainbow tells us. It is God's covenantal sign that he so loves the world. As bad as things might get in this life, as bad as things might get in this world, as troubling as you and I might find the news, as contrary to God's goodwill as some aspects of society might become, God is still committed to this world and to seeing his glory and his creative and just reign made evident and fully realized to the ends of the earth. Now, now, right in the midst of all of that promising, we do get a familiar observation from God, an observation he has made before. Did you catch it? In verse 21 of chapter 8. There we read, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We have heard that bit before, if you'll recall. The intention of humanity's heart being evil. If you'll recall, we heard it right before God began to express his grief and regret and draw a line in the sand with his judgment on the evil in the world in the first place. And it's repeated here again. Because according to God, according to the writer of Genesis, nothing has changed this side of the flood about the heart of humanity. The very seeds in the hearts of humanity that germinated into the full-blown violence that had filled the earth are still there. Humanity had not changed. And the Israelite, were they being self-aware and honest with themselves as they're hearing this, would not have argued that that is still the case. Yeah, I, I see in my own heart <laughs> these seeds of evil, of injustice, these thoughts that I have against my fellow man. I see these in my own heart. And before, when this was observed, God expressed his judgment. How do we know now whether God will at some point again simply have had enough and exercise his judgment again on a cosmic scale? And so God says, in spite of the fact that nothing about humanity's heart has changed, knowing that, of course, my posture towards evil and injustice does not change, 
I'm going to make a commitment to you that you can know I will not ever bring this type of cosmic judgment against all of the world in one fell swoop. And I will give a sign to remind you. And so God commandeers the rainbow. There's no reason to think that the rainbow was never there before. God made everything in six days, if you'll recall. So the fact that there are rainbows, certainly we're already there. But God says, now, every time you see the rainbow, you, I will remember my promise that I'm making to you. And multiple times in this passage, we read about God's remembering. I will remember. I will remember. But surely, as we said before, God doesn't forget like you and I forget. What does it mean that God has to say, I will remember? Well, first of all, when God remembers, when the Bible speaks of God remembering, it's an expression full of thought and care about someone or some people. It's his way of communicating that he has not forgotten his promise to provide for someone that he has committed his particular providential care for. For God to remember is God committing to maintain his providential care of of his creative work. This is how the theologian Ben Witherington puts it about God's remembering. The issue of being forgotten is a genuine pastoral issue. Every person knows times of the dark night of being forgotten. But the gospel of this God is that he remembers. The only thing the waters of chaos and death do not cut through, though they cut through everything else, is the commitment of God to creation. His remembering is an act of gracious engagement with his covenant partner, an act of committed compassion. It's the remembering of God and only that which gives hope and makes new life possible. It's God's remembering that gives hope and makes new life possible. So what all is God promising to remember? Well, in verse 22, here we read, while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall never cease. The fact that you and I wake up in the morning (laughs) and once again we see the light from the sun and we put our heads on our pillows at night when the sun is no longer casting the light in our part of the world. Isn't simply happening on its own. That's how God designed it. And God will keep it that that way. There will never be snow, as we see this morning when we woke up, when it's 80 degrees on a summer afternoon. Now that's about as much of a scientific statement that Moses would have been interested in conveying. (laughs) in this passage. But it would have been important for an agricultural society to be reminded 
that, yes, you can count on the fact when you plant those seeds, there will come a day, there will come a time, there will come a season of harvest. It will follow. You have, um, you have amazing seasons here in Madison, I must say. In fact, I was just having a conversation with someone about, yes, they, they asked, don't you have seasons in New York? And we do have seasons in New York. But living in the city, all I see are concrete buildings. <laughs> and to have access to the nature that you do here in Madison so that the brilliance of the changing of the seasons can be more readily, palpably experienced is a beautiful thing. <laughs> I loved your fall, just the, the reds and the oranges and the yellows, the brilliance of the, of the trees. And your local farmers certainly love the fall. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the corn, just the, the acres and acreage of corn, the fact that a farmer can count on the fact that, yes, there's going to be corn at the end of this harvest is a comforting thing. Your winters are gorgeous, too. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Yes, there's some science there, but it's really more about poetry. Sun wakes up every morning ready to praise God with its light on a new day. Stars come out at night. It's a celebration of God's majesty. Now, it's one thing to say that God remembers his commitment and providential care and promises to creation as a whole. It's one thing to acknowledge, yes, water will always freeze at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. That God remembers his commitment and remains faithful to providentially watching over his creation, his world, is not really a question for you and me most of the time. What can be difficult for us sometimes is to be fully confident and sure, not that God remembers his creation, his world, his providential care, but that he remembers us, that he remembers me. When you and I are, might have been forgotten by others, when we feel dismissed or ignored, by loved ones, by friends. It's painful. And we might, God, hello. <laughs> Do you remember me? When we find ourselves in difficult times and circumstances, no, we wouldn't necessarily doubt that God is sovereign over all things in a general sense. We wouldn't particularly question his care and concern for the world as a whole, the world out there, but like Walt, sitting in that car, truth be told, there are moments when you and I do wonder, God, have you forgotten me? But the Bible again and again tells us that the story of God remembering may not always line up with our timeline. But truth be told, God is a God who remembers. We see often throughout the Bible that 
God remembering someone or his people is used to express that, that moment when in his providential timing, he steps in to deliver or to save someone from shame, from danger, from hardship. We, were we to keep going to Genesis, we would see it later with Rachel, who was barren for a long time, watching her sister conceive. Certainly she must have cried out, God, do you remember me? And in chapter 30, verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. It's used collectively of God's people, Israel, when they're enslaved in Egypt. Again, also later in Genesis. There comes a point when God, it says, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with their fathers. It's used by God's people in Exodus 32 when they cry out in prayer to God and petition to act on their behalf. There we, we read the people crying out, God, remember Abraham, Isaac, remember your servants. So in the Bible, when we see God remembering, it's a beautiful thing. His shalom, his peace, his deliverance is about to follow. When God remembers, it's a following through of his protection, his care, his love, his presence, his deliverance, his salvation for someone or for a people. And here in chapter 8, right off the bat, we were told in a way that undergirds the entire passage, really, God remembered Noah. Yes, God remembers his providential commitment to ensure the world runs the way he originally designed it. But here we see something even more intimate. God remembered Noah. Now, I don't know about you, but as I look back on my life, I can genuinely see times where I went through really long, dark seasons in which my prayer continued, remember me, God. Remember me. But there were also moments when I could say with confidence that God had remembered me. And this side of the new heavens and the new earth prior to Jesus' return and fully remaking and reordering everything under his care, life and its changing circumstances will never have the capacity in and of themselves to constantly persuade me, to persuade us on their own that God does in fact remember. What we do have is actually a visible and sensible sign, a proof that he does remember us. And it's here at the table. Whereas God entered into a covenant with Noah and all creation and commandeered a physical, visible sign as a means of remembering his covenant and his commitment to remember him, to remember creation, God enters into a covenant with you and me through his son, through his son's life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. 
And Jesus himself says so as he gives this meal to his disciples. This is the new covenant in my blood when he offers it to his disciples. It's the covenant that once and for all deals with the fact that our intentions are not all that they should be from our youth. It's the covenant whereby the judgment is poured out on someone else that you and I might be saved and spared. Remember, as Cam shared with us last Sunday, the way the rainbow hangs in the sky is a picture of how God has turned his judgment away from us and directed it toward himself. And at the cross, it was finished once and for all so that we can say boldly, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, although, yes, as we will say and repeat again in a few moments, Jesus does exhort his disciples and us to remember him when we partake the meal. But friends, what's really happening at the table is you and I are being reminded that he remembers us. This is why we need the table on a weekly basis, to, for us to be reminded that God is not forgotten. It is here that God renews his covenant with us. It is here that he sustains us. Despite the fact that you and I can be fickle with how we go about life and how we go about things that we say and we offer to others, there is no question ever whether God will make good on either his work or his word. His covenants are good and for all time. And so we remember his covenants as a means to be reminded that God remembers us. Forgive me for another parent illustration. Parenting is just a plethora of constant illustrations. There was a time when my oldest son, God bless him as he suffers in Hawaii, <clears throat> There was, a, there was a time when my oldest son must have been probably four years old. We were in our house. It was a Sunday afternoon. I'm sitting in my chair probably reading a book, fireplace going. It was in the winter. And right off the, the fireplace, there was, a, there was our little play, there was a little play area. A toy had all of his toys and everything. And as I'm reading, he didn't do this to get my attention, but I could see what he was doing out of the corner of my eye. I could see just through the doorway there, he would be playing, and all of a sudden he would stop. And he would get up, and he'd walk to the door and look around the door, and he would see me still sitting in my chair. He'd get a smile on his face, and he'd go back and continue to play some more. Until, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes later, he'd get up, walk around the corner, see I'm still sitting in the chair, and he'd go back to his business of playing with his toys. All happy. What was he doing? <laughs> I can't exactly read his mind. My sense is, and I hope this is what it was, because it makes for a great illustration. He was just coming to see the confirm that his dad was still there. As long as dad was still there, <laughs> I'm safe. I can play. I can enjoy what I'm doing. 
But I need to be reminded from time to time. I need to just check, make sure he's still there. <laughs> he's still there. Friends, this table we're about to take is a regular reminder for us to look around, to be able to look around the corner. Is our Heavenly Father still there? Is he still in charge? Does he still remember? Yes, he's still there. Remember that this morning as we go to the table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do admit that in our finiteness, in our weakness, in our frailty, it is easy for us to forget that you are for us, that you are providentially caring for us. If we are all honest with ourselves and each other and with you, we, we admit, the truth be told, there are times we do cry out, our hearts cry out, whether it ever comes to our lips or not, there are times we cry out, God, do you, do you remember me? Help us to see that in your covenant commitment to us, even in the sign that you've attached to this covenant, we can be weekly, regularly reminded that you were there, that you are our Father, that you do care, and you are still on the throne. Help us to believe that once again this morning, for Christ's sake. Amen.